If you have your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 6. And last week, I I started a mini-series of sorts uh, that I'm calling Jesus the Original. One of Jesus' teaching tools was to uh, compare himself to something that people knew and understood, but by comparing himself to that, he would teach them something else. And so, John chapter 6, I'm calling Jesus the Original, and we're going to kind of compare some things that we know, that we understand, and then we're going to look at Jesus' life and what takes place in John chapter 6 and see what these things teach us or what he teaches us as these things. So last week, we talked about Jesus as the original Mythbuster, based on the Discovery Channel Mythbusters show. And the myth that Jesus busted was that only good things come to those who follow him. We talked about how Jesus put the disciples into a boat and sent them off into a storm that was going to arise on the Sea of Galilee and say, wait a second, God would send us into dangerous situations? Well, he does that to remind us that he will always meet us and be with us where he sends us. And later, that night, Jesus walked on water to the disciples and calmed the storms to reveal more about himself. So we talked about Jesus as the original mythbuster. Well, this week, our passage, picking up in John chapter 6, verse 22, connects back to the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And the rest of this chapter is actually tied to that miracle and the teachings and the truths and the principles that Jesus would teach after that miracle happened. But Jesus' desire was that people wouldn't get fixated on miracles, but that they would believe in him for something greater than simply fish and bread. Jesus wanted people to believe in him so that they could have a relationship with him and receive the gift of eternal life that he offered. But as we see in John, which is actually a reflection on humanity, humankind, us included, we see that people don't always want what they need, but they often want what they want. Now, that sounds confusing, but look at it, and you're going to understand it because you know what this is like, because you and I live here. We don't always want what we need. When you're at a restaurant, you need to get the steamed vegetables with your entree, don't you? But what do you want when you oftentimes go? And what do you get when you go to the the baked potato with the sour cream, the butter, the bacon bits, and chili if they got it, right? Okay? We don't need that, but we want it. So people don't always want what they need. We want what we want oftentimes. And unfortunately, what we want is oftentimes not what is best for us. And we see this with Jesus and the crowd in this interaction in John 6. So I titled this week's sermon, Jesus, the Original Golden Ticket, taken from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Any of you ever seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the older version, Gene Wilder? Uh, Some of you kids may have been growing up in that time. Uh, It's a classic movie, and as I watched it this week, kind of make sure I I remember the story correctly and all this, there were some amazing spiritual parallels. I was like, really, there's a lot of stuff in here to talk about. And so we actually watched it with our kids, and I typed up, if you want to go to the Welcome Center, and if maybe this week you want to dust off your VHS tape, because it's probably got dust on it, you haven't been using them, and if you still have a VCR and it works, to watch Willy Wonka with your kids or grandkids. There's a discussion guide with some verses about some of the things in there. It was pretty interesting how there are some spiritual truths that can be drawn from that movie. But uh, from this movie, that's the old version. I didn't watch the new one with, with you know Johnny Depp. That's I don't know if any of you all saw. I heard really bad things about it. And a couple a couple of comments on that. You know, one is I think we're living in like maybe the least creative generation ever. 
Because, like, we don't make new and original stuff. He's, like, remaking all the old stuff that's out, right? And apparently, based on that, the 70s and 80s are the greatest generation ever, right? Because all the stuff from them, they're remaking. Now, Transformers are back out now. Smurfs have a new movie coming out. The Muppets are hitting the big screen again this fall. Can you believe it? You got the Muppets coming out. Uh, and they're, they're making comic book movies faster than they're printing comic books anymore. You know, nobody wants to go read the book. They just want to wait for the movie to come out. So we're just redoing all this sort of stuff. And then my, my grandmother was a godly woman, and, and she didn't speak negatively of people. The only derogatory thing I ever heard her say, I think she would have probably kind of said about Johnny Depp. I think she would have looked at him, shook her head, and said, that boy ain't right. You know, I just, that, that, that's, that's about as bad as my grandma. If she ever said you weren't right, there is something going on there, all right? I, maybe he's normal in real life, but all of his movie stuff, it's just, it, just kind of out there. But in Willy Wonka, the old version, poor underprivileged Charlie wins one of five golden tickets that were distributed worldwide. And he got to go take a tour of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. So he's in this group of kids and their guests. And they're spoiled rotten, they're disobedient, and they wind up getting kicked out of the factory because they're selfish, they're self-centered, and they disobey the rules, and they, they find, find themselves in trouble. So, so they get uh, sent out of the factory. And in the end, Charlie finally realizes, and, and it's revealed to him, that his tour was actually a test. And that because of his character, his, his humble, gentle heart, he was actually going to succeed Willy Wonka as the candy man. So his golden ticket was so much more than just a tour of the factory. The ticket gave him the opportunity to inherit the Willy Wonka dynasty. And so as I think about Christ as the golden ticket, it's not just that it's a ticket to heaven, that that's not it at all. And it's not just benefits that we receive from Christ. We get so much more because of Christ when we receive Christ in the way that he wants and he desires of us. So listen closely this morning as, as we kind of walk through this passage here in John chapter 6. If you start slipping off and, and, and uh, snoozing on me a little bit, I'm going to have to break into song, all right? Who can make the sun rise? The candy man. I got motions too, all right? You know, I kind of get some, 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 we'll get going here in a little bit. And uh, no, I'm, just, I'm not going to sing any more than I just did. That'd be bad. But Grant and Pastor Michael are going to come in and do a Oompa Loompa invitation song. So, uh, Hold on for that one. All right, seriously. John chapter 6. The crowd wakes up the day after Jesus fed them, uh, the 5,000 and the more with the women and children. They wake up and go looking for Jesus, but they can't find him. Now, they remembered from the day before that Jesus put the disciples in a boat and had them head out onto the Sea of Galilee, but he didn't get in the boat with them. So they're thinking, well, he has to be here. So they look around, they can't find him. They finally decide that since they can't find him, they're going to get in boats, go to Capernaum and see if the disciples knew where he was going. Because apparently he left and went somewhere during the night. When they get to Capernaum on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they find Jesus there and they say to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And they're, they're, they're puzzled. You, obviously, there wasn't another boat that left the dock. It's, it took take too long to walk around the lake and get there. Uh, they, they don't know how he got there. Well, the day before, they wanted to make Jesus king by force when Jesus performed the miracle of feeding them with just the five loaves and the two fish. So what do you think their response would be if Jesus told them, oh, last night during the storm, I walked out to the disciples on the middle of the lake. When I got there, Peter and I took a stroll together and talked for a few minutes. Then I got in the boat. I calmed the storm and put us immediately in Capernaum just like that. Well, 
king by force the day before? Probably king by force if he tells that. So Jesus doesn't even answer their question. Rabbi, how did you get here? He ignores it. He just goes on and he begins to teach them. And he kind of rebukes the crowd for coming to him with wrong motives. He says in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you. And anytime you see Jesus say truly, truly, or verily, verily, some, some interpretations say amen, amen. Uh, Jesus is saying you can trust us. This is doubly trustworthy what I'm about to say. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Now, the whole signs thing here is this. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. The crowd is looking for the Messiah. How would they know the Messiah is here? Because of the signs that he would perform. It was his proof, his identity, you know, pulling out and saying, here's my name, see my title, it, is, it says Messiah. The sign was proof of his identity. And Jesus tells them, you're not here because of the signs. Because if they had believed the sign the day before, they would be there to place their faith and their trust in him as Messiah. But Jesus says, you're not going to do that. And he goes on. He says, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they're there because they had their bellies full the day before, Jesus says. But then he tells them, do not labor for the food that perishes. I fed you last night and now you're here. Are you hungry again? Well, you ate dinner last night. Did you skip breakfast this morning? If so, do you have a rumbly in your tumbly? Another Winnie Pooh movie. See, everything is being redone. Now, we know what it's like. We get hungry again even though we eat physical food. Jesus says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. Which, he says, the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus says, don't work for earthly food that's going to leave you hungry again. Look for so much more for something that's going to give you eternal satisfaction and fulfillment. That's what he wants the crowd to receive. And he says, the son of man, I have come to give that to you. I want you to experience and have this. So the crowd hears it. But you see, here's this whole thing of our expectations. We want what we want, not what we need. They filter it and they twist it through their preferences and their expectations of God. They say to Jesus uh, here in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Is that not so typical of human beings? What must we do, the crowd says. It's all about actions, our effort, what we can accomplish in our strength and our power. But you know, what happens when we accomplish something or we feel like we've accomplished something in our own strength and our own power? Well, I think two dangers happen when we feel like we've done something. One, whatever we feel like we've worked for and we earned, we protect. We try and protect that stuff, don't we? I work for this, it's mine, and nobody's going to take it away from me. And so we, we set guards around it. We, we, we kind of begin to hoard and we hold tight to it because we work for it. We deserved it. This is our fair wage for what we did. But a second thing that happens is we can begin to tend toward pride. We feel good about what we've accomplished, what we've earned, and what we deserve. And, and that kind of gives us a sense of pride uh, and entitlement to that. But as that pride begins to, to settle in, we start ranking things. We start ranking ourselves. I have this. They don't have that. Mine is better than theirs. Therefore, I'm better than them. Or we, we see that we've got something. Somebody else has something that may be what we rank as better than ours. And then we kind of get envious jealous, 
covetous in there, and that begins to, to mess with our thinking and how we see and interact, and we begin to strive after these things so we can get to where they are. So all these things come when we feel like we've accomplished something on our own. That's why the Bible is so very clear and says over and over and over and over again this truth. We do nothing. We do nothing to earn or merit or deserve salvation through Jesus Christ. We don't earn it. We, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We, we can't buy it from God. We can't trade or barter with God. We do nothing to earn salvation. Ephesians 2, Paul writes and says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. If you have your version of Scripture here, uh, your own copy, underline, not your own doing. Paul says, you don't do it. You don't earn salvation. He goes on and says, it is the gift of God. And he adds, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's that pride settling in. We do nothing to earn our salvation, but it is a gift of God that we can receive through Jesus Christ. And Jesus teaches this to the crowd. And he tells them, well, you want to know what to do? There is one thing, and this is the only thing that you must do to be doing the works of God. He says uh, in the next passage here in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. And so we look at that and go, well, that's simple enough. Now, we're sitting here, many of us have been in church all of our lives, have seen the Bible, understand Scripture, believe in Jesus as the Messiah. We have a background. But imagine the crowd here hearing him say, believe in the one whom he has sent. And they're going to say, well, who is he? And you kind of stop for a second and go, Really? Are you going to ask that question, who is the one that God has sent? Hey, turning water into wine may have been a clue. You know, healing the official son from over 20 miles away may have been a clue. That there's an invalid who was an invalid for 38 years who stood by the pool who had no hope of ever walking again. And Jesus spoke the word and said, get up, take your mat and walk. And the man got up and was running home. May have been a clue. Feeding over 20,000 people when you include the women and children who were there with just five loaves of bread and two fish may have been a clue of who the one is that God sent, but they miss it. I mean, this is mind-boggling to me that they miss it and still will ask the question that they ask in verse 30. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Really? Are they going to ask that question in spite of what they've seen and experienced? They say, what work do you perform? And then they give an example to say, hey, here's our history. You need to do something greater than this. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is basically a dare for Jesus. They are so fixated on what they could get from Jesus that they refused to believe in him as the Messiah. And so they basically dare him and say, you know what? 
Moses fed our forefathers manna in the wilderness six days a week for 40 years. If you really are the Messiah, then you come and you show us you do something greater than what our father Moses did. It's basically a dare for Jesus to say, do something better than that. You fed us yesterday. What's on the menu for today, pal? That literally is the request that they're making. And this has grieved my heart and and consumed just my my own time and and relationship with the Lord this week. Just searching my own heart to say, Lord, have I gotten so distracted? Am I so tied up in my expectations and my wants and my preferences that I'm not hearing and listening to what you want to say and what you want to do in my life? One of the commentators uh, that I was reading and studying, John MacArthur, he, he summed it up this way. The crowds followed him for what they could get. They were not interested in either worshiping or obeying him. The previous evening, they had experienced his miraculous power and provision, but instead of responding with humble worship, they wanted more from him. They had no interest in Jesus. They wanted him to serve them. And then he he put this in here, and I put this in your sermon notes. They were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. So they were asking and expecting, saying, what are you going to do for us? That will be the sign. If you can do something greater than Moses, then then we'll believe in you. But what did Jesus say about those who came seeking the miraculous and wanting the the signs and the wonders to, to prove who he was and not believing just in faith? In Matthew 12, Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and here they are seeking and demanding a sign from Jesus in spite of what they had witnessed just hours earlier remember that hours earlier they had eaten the bread and the fish in a miraculous uh, display of Jesus power and yet here they are back asking for more saying what are you going to do next You know, before we get too hard on the crowd and pass judgment on them, and this is where I've been all week long, you know, we need to look in a mirror. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to search deep in our own hearts. And we need to grapple with what we may find there as we do some self-evaluation. Because we can say, yeah, that crowd was bad. I wouldn't be like that. Well, would we or would we not? Are we or are we not following in the same patterns and same habits and with the same desires as the crowd that day? And a simple question for you to think and to pray through, and I really encourage you to get alone with the Lord and spend some time working through this in your own heart and life is to say and to ask, do you seek or are you seeking Jesus' hands more than his face? That is, in your relationship with Jesus, are you more focused on what you can get from him and the blessings that you want him to pour out upon you and the things that you want him to do? That is, what you receive from his hands into your life? Are you more concerned with those things than you are with seeking the face of Christ, to know him, to be an intimate personal relationship with him so that you can obey him and surrender your life to him and empty your life and empty you of yourself so that you can be filled with the fullness of Christ. Think about your prayer life, for example. Do you find yourself spending more time asking for stuff from God than you do in time of thanksgiving and praise, recognizing 
that God has already blessed you tremendously. Just think about your prayer time. Is it more asking for stuff or is it at least balanced with spending time praising God for what you've already received? And then think about the requests that you present to God. Are they more focused on earthly, temporal, maybe material, or even physical needs here on earth than they are on kingdom and spiritual issues? Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about about one or the other, but is there a balance in our lives? Or are we so focused on one for us and for things of this world that we're not even praying for salvation of lost neighbors and and for people to come to Christ and and for the backslidden to, to come and to renew their hearts and recommit their lives to Christ? What do our checkbook registers say about our financial priorities in relation to God's kingdom and the, and the teachings of scripture? Have we grown complacent with sin and sin strongholds in our lives or or justified and rationalized away some of our sins? In short, are we coming to Jesus on his terms or are we wanting Jesus to do what we want him to do? Are we expecting him to serve us? And our relationship with him is all about what we can get from him instead of how we can surrender ourselves and obey and serve and worship him. R.C. Sproul said it this way, God absolutely requires that he be worshiped in a way that he commands, not according to the way that we prefer. And that's exactly what Jesus teaches in his response to the crowd. He tells them that he really is what they need, what they're longing for, what they're looking for, but they're going to have to receive it on his terms not theirs. In verse 32, he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, here's the same point of emphasis. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. So first of all, he corrects their, their thing about Moses providing. He says, no, 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 It wasn't Moses that gave you manna. Who was it? It was God. I mean, Moses didn't stay at bake all night long and then go out and drop it on the ground for him to pick up. That wasn't Moses. It was God who sent manna from heaven. He says, But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Manna means bread from heaven or bread from God. And he says, my father, Jesus claiming uh, his identity with God. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And I can just so imagine, I mean, we see this over and over again in John. The people are talking about something. Jesus is using the same words, but he's talking about something different. They're talking about bread going past their teeth, through their mouth, into their bellies. They're talking physical bread, manna in the wilderness. It was eaten by the people, kept them alive. Jesus is saying the true bread from heaven that I come and give to you. He's on a spiritual plane. It's more important. It's greater, more significant than what you raise your sights. Think bigger, think more important, but they, they can't see it. So they say, give us this bread always. So there's still this confusion. So Jesus straight to the point says, okay, let's, I'm done. Let's, let me clarify this, simplify it for you. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whew. There, he said it. It's out there. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. You're talking, okay, if you want to talk bread terms, I'm the bread. 
Okay, and he goes on. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus gives here the first of seven I am statements that we will see in John's gospel. And basically when he does that, he is invoking his identity that he is one and the same as God. Because Moses in the Old Testament, when God said, go deliver my children from captivity in Egypt, Moses said, when I get there, they're going to say, who are you, Moses, to come and tell us to leave? Who sent you? Moses said, God, you're sending me, but who will I tell them so they'll believe me? And God says what? You tell them I am sent you and they'll believe and they'll follow here Jesus uses I am as the same construct the same wording as the I am who spoke to Moses it is the exact same and the people knew that I am Jesus says and then he gives this picture comparing who he is to the spiritual truth he wants them to know and here he says he gives spiritual life by comparing and using the analogy of bread from physical life And he says that when we receive his offer on his terms, we no longer have spiritual hunger or thirst. He said, he who comes to me, whoever comes to me will no longer hunger or or thirst. And he says that he will raise them up on the last day. So we say, well, well, how do we receive th- this gift of salvation, this gift of life through, through the bread of Christ? Well, two things. Jesus tells us both of them. Verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So we need to come to Jesus. It's not the word repentance, but it's that idea of repentance. For example, if I, if I want to, if someone's over there, he grants the piano says, hey, come over to the piano. Well, he's saying that because I'm not at the piano. So if I'm going to come to something, where did I start? I started away from it so that I can come to it. I mean, if I'm standing here and Grant says, come to the piano, I'm going to look at him and say, I'm right here, dude. You know, I'm already here. There's no reason to come to because I'm already there. So when Jesus says, come to me, he's telling us we are separated from God. Because of our sin, because of our disobedience, there is a distance. There is a separation between us and God. And Jesus says, come to me. You're, you're apart. You're separated. I want you to be with me. And then he says the other part is we come and we believe. The next part of the sentence says, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we believe that Jesus died for our sins and and we pray and we invite him into our life so that he can forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life and then live within us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So we're secure, we're certain in our salvation through Jesus Christ. You know, here are two things you're never going to hear in heaven. You're not going to hear Jesus walk up to somebody in heaven and say, hey, how'd you get here? I didn't think you were going to make it. Now, you may look around and see some people and say, hey, how'd they get here? I didn't think they were going to make it, all right? That's the, you may be surprised. Hopefully, nobody will be surprised to see you there, all right? If so, you may need to kind of be thinking about you know, your example right now. I, say, well, I thought you weren't going to make it. But you're also not going to hear Jesus walking around going, hey, has anybody seen John? Does anybody know where Susie is? I thought they were going to be here, and I can't find them anywhere. I'm not sure that, that, that they made it into heaven. 
Well, of course that's not going to happen. Jesus knows, and, and he, he holds and is secure with those who come to him. And this chapter uh, begins to, to bubble up, and some of these verses are, are part of what enters into the conversation on predestination versus free will. Predestination being uh, God knows who's going to be saved and, and has chosen and selected them. They're part of the elect is what the Bible calls it, versus free will where we say, well, if we're chosen, then how do we how do we have free will? We don't need to because we're already chosen and predestined. And so we get into all this stuff and our brain hurts and smoke starts coming out of our ears and this kind of stuff. So let me just paint a couple of broad strokes uh, on this conversation because these, these verses uh, kind of bring up the topic that's here. First, while God's sovereignty in, in election and salvation and man's free will are incomprehensible in the human mind. We just can't wrap our brain around how both of those things could be real and true and, and how they work together. There is no conflict between these truths in the infinite mind of God. That word infinite is the key word in that sentence. God is smarter than us. His ways are higher than ours. He can think and comprehend and know and do things that we cannot. That's what makes him God and makes us not God. Okay? So it, a lot of things don't work out in our minds, but they work out in the infinite mind of God himself. Secondly, I mean, as we look around the room, do we know who is saved in this room? Genuinely, truly saved. Well, no, we don't. Now, we hope and pray that, obviously, by the fruit of persons and their testimony, that, that we, we have an estimation of those who are saved. But Jesus said some will stand before him one day, and he'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you not, even though these people did signs and wonders in his name. Now, the Bible says that we can be secure in our own salvation and have no reason to doubt and certain of that. But for anyone else, that's between them and God. And so we do not know who will be saved. But does God know who is saved? And who will be saved? Well, according to Scripture, you betcha God knows who is saved and will be saved. I mean, can you fathom a picture where God's walking around in heaven, wringing his, his hands, going, oh, what decisions is he going to make? What's he going to do? I hope he makes the right choice. You know, I hope he chooses, chooses wisely down there. I mean, God doesn't not know what's going to take place. So God knows these things. He does. We don't. So therefore, the most important part of this entire conversation is the last truth that we see today is that we are commanded, we who are in Jesus Christ, who have given our lives to him, we are commanded to spread and share the good news of Jesus Christ with every other person that we can so that they might be saved. There is no doubt, no discussion, no way to wiggle ourselves out of that truth based on the pages of Scripture and what Jesus himself said in the Great Commission. We are to share the gospel with other people. And look in this passage. I mean, we see here again how these truths, and I called them truths because we see that they're both clearly seen in Scripture. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. What's the next word? Whoever. Whoever. Well, what's that mean? It means whoever of like anybody. And Jesus says, comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so there, there's a whoever. Down in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. He says, this is the will of God that everyone, he says. What's that mean? It means everyone. See, you guys got this Bible interpretation thing down. Everyone means everyone. It means all people. Everyone is all inclusive. The will of God is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. We'll look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
Well, if he gave them to you, then do you need to call them? How does? Yes, it's both. They're they're both in there. Okay, we see these things. What's the point of the scripture here? Come to Jesus. Jesus says both of these things, but his point is, come and believe in me, and I'll take care of the rest. So every hour that we spend talking about this whole predestination of free will is an hour that we could have been out building relationships with our neighbors, sharing the gospel with people who could give their hearts and their lives to Christ. And you know what? If you witness and you share the gospel with your neighbor, one theologian is going to say, see, they were part of the elect, chosen from the beginning of time. You know what? That's what that theologian is going to say. And the next theologian over here is going to say, he or she responded of his own free will to receive the offer of salvation made possible as the Holy Spirit moved and worked in their heart and their life. And you know what God's going to say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. That which was lost has been found. Let's celebrate that my child has returned to me. And if you don't believe me, look at Luke chapter 15 to see that that's what's going to take place. Our task, our role, our responsibility is to share the gospel and leave the results up to God. And Jesus reminds us of that. Come to me, everyone, whoever, all who come to me. The Father knows, but all who come to me. But see, we don't know who's going to be saved, who's not going to be saved. Therefore, we just tell everybody. Tell everybody and leave the results up to God. Well, how could I possibly end this message without a clip from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So I want to show this little clip here. It kind of gives it this picture, the summation of what Jesus is teaching, what I've talked about this morning. At the end of the movie, Charlie thought and was uh, under the impression he was going to get a lifetime supply of Wonka bars. And everybody wants a lifetime supply of Wonka We don't need a lifetime supply of Wonka bars, but we want a lifetime supply of Wonka bars. I, just give me one everlasting gobstopper. I'm good. I don't need the Wonka bars. But Charlie, remember, signed this contract saying that he wouldn't eat or drink anything in the factory during his tour. And so in this clip, Willy Wonka forcefully reminds Charlie's grandfather that they were both guilty of breaking that contract. And his grandfather's ready to leave in a huff and sell his candy secrets to a rival candy maker. But watch Charlie's response at the end of this clip. Go ahead. Uh, there's a spiritual truth in there. I don't know what it is. You can make up your own question for that one. Half clocks, half pictures. Mr. Walker, I am extraordinarily busy, sir. Uh, I just wanted to ask about the chocolate. Uh, the lifetime supply of chocolate for Charlie. Well, when does he get it? He doesn't. Why not? Because he broke the rules. What rules? We didn't see any rules, did we, Charlie? Wrong, sir. Wrong. Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that all offers shall become null and void if, and you can read it for yourself in this photostatic copy, I, the undersigned, shall forfeit all rights, privileges, and licenses herein and herein contained, etc., etc., fax mentis incendium gloria calpum, etc., etc., memo bis punitor delicatum. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You stole fizzy lifting drinks. You bumped into the ceiling, which now has to be washed and sterilized, so you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. You're a crook. You're a cheat and a swindler. That's what you are. How can you do a thing like this? 
build up a little boy's hopes and then smash all his dreams to pieces. You're an inhuman monster! I said good day! Come on, Charlie. Let's get out of here. I'll get even with him if it's the last thing I ever do. Slugworth wants a gobstopper. He'll get one. Mr. Wonka? So shines a good deed in a weary world. Charlie! My boy. You won! You did it! You did it! I knew you would! I just knew you would! Oh, Charlie. Forgive me for putting you through this. Please, forgive me. Come in, Mr. Wilkinson. Charlie, meet Mr. Wilkinson. Pleasure. Slugworth. No, no, that's not Slugworth. He works for me. For you? I had to test you, Charlie, and you passed the test. You won. What, what? The jackpot, my dear sir. The grand and glorious jackpot. The chocolate? The chocolate, yes, the chocolate. But that's just the beginning. We have to get on. We have to get on. We have so much time and so little to do. Strike that. Reverse it. This way, please. So in that, Charlie thought he had won the chocolate, but uh, if you remember the end of the movie, actually Willy Wonka was retiring, and he wanted someone to take over his legacy, and he needed someone. He wanted a child with a gentle, humble heart and teachable spirit because he said adults, they know what they want. They're going to do things their way. They're not going to learn from me and let me teach them. Today, Jesus calls us and says, come to me learn from me and and he thought he was going to get a tour of the factory and then get the chocolate but instead his golden ticket enabled him to get everything he got so much more than a tour and a lifetime supply he inherited everything and the bible says that when we place our faith and our trust in jesus christ we are co-heirs we are sons and daughters of the king but we must admit to our sin. Charlie was guilty. He and his grandfather were guilty. They broke the rules. We've broken God's rules. We are separated from him. But today he invites us to come to him to be forgiven of our sins, to receive the gift of eternal life, and to have the Holy Spirit live and dwell within us, to have the full resources and powers of God available to us. And you could receive Christ. You could place your faith and your trust in him by coming this morning and praying a prayer similar to this. Dear God, I know that I have sinned, and God, I'm sorry for those sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, and Jesus, I ask you, would you please come into my life? Forgive me of my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life, and Jesus, would you take control of my life? And those words aren't magic. It's the attitude of the heart, but if you would give your life to Christ today, you could become a child of the King. And believer, you may be here this morning and you may have been convicted that you've been seeking God's hand more than his face. And maybe God's saying you need to commit and and reprioritize your life to spend more time in prayer and scripture reading and serving God in his kingdom or or, or giving in some way of your time, your talent, or your resources. I don't know what God may have spoken to you about today, but would you respond in obedience 